0: Anderson Afternoons, the podcast. Hello, and welcome to the podcast, which will focus on the treatment of meth addiction. Coming up, Ian Rabb from Aurora Recovery Center, Rodel Batista, his son took his own life while battling this disease, and Dr. Jeanette Poulin, the medical director of AFM on Manitoba's RAM clinics. Please rate the podcast, please subscribe to the podcast, and now the podcast. Ian Rabb is here from Aurora Recovery Center up by Gimli in the Interlake. Ian, good to see you. Thanks, Hal. Always good to see you. Did you, uh, when you were a user and an abuser, did you use meth? I That was my drug of choice. That I, was your drug of choice. I
1: used methamphetamine every day for 11 years. 11 years.
0: And so the stories we hear about somebody that's high on meth, Everything about that is true. Give us the experience for you as a user and abuser.
1: So I, I of course, witnessed all the crime. I've participated in it. As you know, I was arrested seven times in the United States for my involvement in both organized crime and methamphetamine production and use. And um, it's all real. It's all very real. There's benign users that will just use and you, you won't hear from them. I think there's a lot of those. And then there's that go on and
0: function every day at whatever their life is
1: for a number of years and or don't end up um, ultimately connected to the system. Either their psychosis is not as bad. They don't lose jobs. There's families enabling them. I mean, there's a number of reasons that people continue to use without help. But the truth is, is there's, that it's very connected to crime. It's very connected to identity theft. We don't talk about that very much anymore, but hmm. it really is connected to, it's a different drug. And, you know, I always, I always used to make reference or, or joke that if you do crack or cocaine, you're worried about everybody coming in the house. You know, you're worried about the police coming, like you're always peeking out the windows and you're worried really about that environment. When you're a meth user, you're worried about the guy sitting next to you. Hmm. So the reason we see so much we see two types of crime around meth. We see, you know, this uh, because it's so elusive in what it makes people do and believe because of the psychosis. We see a lot of of the violent crime around it, but you also see a lot of internal crime around people that know each other. That's why I think often we hear about stabbings in a house. Usually there's probably more than one participant using meth and they think they stole each other's girlfriend, they think they stole each other's gr- drugs. They, I mean, it could be a... It's all in their heads. It's all in their heads. There's nothing that's real. It's, it's the most... It, it is one of the most crazy disease around what goes on internally. I mean, it's very similar to crack cocaine in that. Um, but, you know, some of the crime we're seeing today, like, you, you know, we don't hear about domos being robbed or 7 being robbed anymore, right? And a lot. And in the old crack days, before meth was, a, was primary, uh, the, the primary drug of choice, you'd hear a lot of that, but these places that were pop, because people go there on the outside and instantly need money for that next fix. The difference with methamphetamine is you only need a very little bit to last a really long time. And now when I say that, in my beginning years when I used it on weekends or for, as a party drug, I would buy you know a quarter gram that would last a weekend and you do little bumps and you're fine. By the end of my use... You know, I was I was shooting up half a gram every two to three hours. So it, it changes the dynamic. The drug changes its dynamic over the years. The people you end up hanging out with in the beginning, I was hanging out with fancy people, like celebrities, celebrities, as you know, right? And people that were doing you know private jets and weekend drugs, and we were having a good time. And and ultimately, as you become a you know as you be- as it becomes your life, and you become kind of invested in it, um, ultimately you start heading towards people that are worse off and, and you end up with the lowest of the lowest. And I don't mean lowest of the lowest in people. Cause I wasn't, I, you know, yeah. you know, my, my story, I come from two parents that are married 64 right. years. I'm four year university degrees. Yeah. I'm educated. Um, but you become but where you but end be, up and, you and end the up.
0: things you're doing and the Yeah, correct. I mean, who would have, yeah. you know, I
1: would have thought that I'd end up in organized crime or the sex trade, mm-hmm. right. And, and yeah. which I ended up in both.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think I, I think this is a really important part of what we call the meth crisis. Trying to understand this drug and, uh, and how it affects people, and and
1: uh, there's there's no way for a normal brain to understand a person that uses methamphetamine. Yeah, it, it's, it's 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 as similar as a wife who you meet whose husband's an alcoholic who can't understand why her husband won't quit for her or the kids. Mm. I mean, it, it's that simple, yeah. but much more complex right. because of the psychosis and what methamphetamine does to the brain. Mm-hmm.
0: So here's my question for you. You're at Aurora recovery center a oh, oh, quick, oh, quick question before I ask this one of the people in Aurora, how many are meth? Well, it's usually around It's usually around 12 to 15%. Um, We
1: still see across the province in any treatment modality or any treatment center that 60% of the people we're seeing are alcohol related. Alcohol is still the number one offender. Um, And ultimately also a lot of the people that are starting to use meth now, I think are of a lower income bracket who don't have. Because it's cheap, right? Right. And they don't have family support or people that are going to say we, we get a lot of, let me put it, go back. Let me backtrack. We get a lot of calls from people whose family members are on meth that that would not be able to afford the pub, the private system
0: um, for example for, for
1: example aurora and those people are trying to access a bro, uh, a system where everybody is very engaged and wonderful people that work there mm-hmm. but a system that's completely broken and fragmented which has the inability to manage all of these things in a yeah. in a in a continuum of care in a cohesive way that's the one gift or the one great thing about Aurora. And, you know, we built Aurora before the Virgo report came out and the Virgo report said, do exactly what, they didn't say this, Mm -hmm. but they basically they're saying to do what, what we're doing. Yeah. You have to be able to engage someone immediately, detox them, transition them out of the psychosis and into regular thinking somewhat, and then treat them. And then, My charity, which you know about, Two Ten Recovery and Destiny House, one of the biggest pieces for success around methamphetamine addiction is long-term housing, supportive housing. Right. So if we can place to be, place to go. Yeah. If we have, if we can keep people engaged from point of contact, whether it be an emergency room or the police or whatever, and get them into detox immediately, and then have them go through the continuum to the place where they're, you know, they're they're living comfortably. Um, with supports in place, helping them get jobs, helping them become self-supporting, getting them out of the system, we have... Incredible success opportunity.
0: And I've got uh, the medical director of AFM on later on because I want to talk about these RAM clinics, R-A-A-M cl- uh, clinics, rapid access to addictions medicine, because I-, I know when these were introduced, it was only a couple days a week and certain hours. And it seems to me when somebody goes, I got to get help, they need that 24-7. Okay.
1: So from from the street, yeah. and I'm not talking from the statistics yeah. or AFM or government's perspective, And I think the RAM has changed a lot as it's developed. It was a pilot. I think it was chaotic in the beginning. No one knew what to do or how to manage it. I know that uh, now there's, you know, RAM can have access to a certain number of beds at Main Street Project for people that come in. But the truth is, as long as the system doesn't grow, number of beds, wait times change, the use of RAM clinics are minimal. Now, I think they're doing a good they're a piece of the puzzle that could do the good good job. Yeah, but
0: is it enough?
1: But it's not it's not enough. And, right. we, and and it was it was premature to introduce it without without working on the back end. We if we don't work on the system, the system yeah. is broken.
0: People go to a RAM clinic and then what? And then right? what? Right. Some, yeah.
1: They do have sometimes sometimes access to detox right. beds now, but then there's no access to necessarily the treatment beds, and they end up going back to them their environment, and what happens? And, and they're not able to give all the answers at RAM clinics. Mm-hmm. Come back, go to this place on this day. Right. I mean, that, that's... In the meantime, they've used again and... Correct. So yeah. the success of Aurora Recovery Center and the great thing that we did is that the minute someone's... Av- we don't. They don't need to come to a Ram clinic. They don't need to go to the hospital. Yeah. We can take them into our medical withdrawal unit, into our detox right. immediately, and we yeah. have protocols and medical te- a medical team available to manage whatever they need to detox. But we from. need
0: more auroras, and we need auroras that are more accessible for those lower income people that you talked about. Uh,
1: absolutely. I, you know, I'll, I'll tell you one of the I've learned over the years yeah. of Aurora, the last three years. Yeah. People that have skin in the game do much better than people that don't, and I don't mean to put to talk about this in the sense that lower income people don't have the right to better treatment. Yeah. But we find that when people have pay something that ultimately we can get better success because they have more and they have more. I understand right? that. Yeah. And so what I've always said, and I've, you know, I, I've said it to government and I think it would be a great idea. You know, government should subsidize beds in a place like Aurora. So we don't have to charge 20 or $30,000 for mm-hmm. someone to get treatment. But if, someone can come up with $5,000 and the government pays the difference and we can give them immediate access, we ultimately could get better success rates. Mm -hmm. And it's been proven that we get better success rates with skin in the game. People that keep thinking they can go to the free system and keep going back, even though there's wait times and, you know, irregularities with it, ultimately um, to get in the game means something and this is coming from a guy that went to the public system, so my dad put his foot down Mm -hmm. and wasn't going to pay another cent for me to do anything, so he made me go to AFM and I'm a, you know, July 7th it'll be 18 years clean yeah. and sober without, without a relapse yeah and that's the other thing I you know, right
0: because in many times I'm going to talk later on to uh, Rodel Bautista and his son Gabriel graduate but relapse correct and then ended up taking his own life right
1: and I and one of the problems with relapse there's no problem with relapse it's a part of addiction but what we've done at Aurora is we've created a robust aftercare program, and we've also created a, a robust family program. So not only are we treating the addicts, we're treating their family, and we're also we have a dedicated staff member. All he does eight hours a day is stay in touch with our alumni hmm. daily,
0: making sure they're Make, all right. And if they're not all right, getting yeah.
1: them back in. And we you know right. we have kind of a, we have warranties available at Aurora. So if people relapse, they have access back to a bed for free. Um, really you can buy a warranty so that if no, you re- it
0: comes with the 40 it comes with, with the 45
1: and 60 day programs. So what we, really? what we've decided to do because mm-hmm.
0: there's, there's, because no, you they're, know, they're probably going to relapse or in many cases they will. Actually, the, it's the
1: opposite. Really? We, we know that people have better success at longer term treatment. We know that what happens is at 60 days, you get two times the chance of success than at 30 days. So we're able to, with great confidence give people a warranty Mm. at six. So if they book a 60 day stay and their family member stays in touch with our aftercare or their counselor weekly, follows all the rules, follows our our three or four guidelines. If they relapse either into behavior or fear of using again, they can come back for 30 days for free. Hmm. So we, we, we know that the success rates are greater at 60 days. We don't have programs like that in Manitoba.
0: How many beds how many beds do you think we would need to add to the system to to deal with what we've got happening right now with meth
1: Well you you probably don't know this but in Canada we have 2200 beds total for all of Canada 2200 in the whole country In the whole country for treatment beds which is which is a sad state of affairs I think that if it's not about it's not about the number of beds, it's about doing treatment properly. Mm. I think that if we could get 20 beds and do it successfully and get 20 more people off the street and show success in that, right. then, then you can add more beds. I think that really to combat this problem, based on what I'm hearing about people going, the number of people showing up at the RAM or the ERs or at Main Street Project with a meth problem, we probably would need, I would say upwards of around 50 beds for men and probably the same for women if we're going to Better the system, but we have to do it. We have to do it better. We need See, a, and that doesn't detox, sound like right, detox beds yeah, and treatment beds right. are two different, different things. things right. Transition how, transitional housing are a different thing.
0: Yeah, and we need to increase the whole spectrum of care and do it right. But to me, that doesn't sound like a whole lot of beds. Like it seems like we could we could deal with that and get that number up fairly quickly. Or or or, or am I wrong? Well, I think. Once even, even
1: with those beds, we're going to need more because right. you have to remember. I understand, in, in the but public, at least
0: we're starting to tackle the problem. We
1: have to start somewhere. But right. if we're going to do beds, do them right. Get the players in the room that know what they're doing and do them right. We also need places for people that have relapsed because relapse. So methamphetamine, we're talking about meth right now. So there's different reasons people relapse for off of different drugs. Mm. Methamphetamine depletes all of the pleasure sensors in your brain completely. So your serotonin uptake inhibitors in your brain stop working completely when you get off the drug. So there's nothing pleasurable in life for a considerable amount of time. Like mm. you really, it's a, very, it's, it's a stimulant that stimulates everything in your life. Right. So it's, it's a real problem. That's why you have to have this continuum of care and understand what happens with meth addicts. And the reason that the relapse is so prevalent is because they're sitting in a place where they don't feel pleasure. So, you have to replace things in their life to give them pleasure and start building the brain chemistry back up mm-hmm. so that it works effectively yeah. and there are some drugs that can be used to do that as well.
0: Well, listen, I appreciate you coming in and, and talking about this with me and and um, you know, congratulations on the success of Aurora because I know how hard and long you worked for that and so and congratulations on eighteen years, which is Thank incredible. You. And uh, you're an important voice I- in this meth crisis out there, and-, and I hope they're listening.
1: Well, I'm trying to, I'm trying to be that voice. I, I, you know, at every table I sit at, and I, I sit on many, I've sat on many task force over the years. Boards. And, boards yeah. and stuff. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm really the only guy there that says, you know, I, I use meth. I yeah. produce meth. Right. I sold meth. Everybody else there are great minds. Yeah. They want to help. They want to help, but they really don't understand the insidious mm-hmm. insanity of the drug of methamphetamine. And I did every other drug too, hell, so, right. and alcohol, yeah. so I'm not yeah. dumb when it comes to those ones either. Um, mm. Or, or I've been the only homeless person sitting on the homeless task force. Yeah. Like, it, it's a very interesting conundrum that we have. But we, we, you know, I, I hope that officials are ready to listen and to listen to the right people because there's a number of camps out there that believe different things, we all know that we need some kind of long long term treatment for for meth addicts. Sometimes up to th- you know a year or longer of you know a systems in place that can keep them you know keep them safe and engage them in the recovery process.
2: It's your real estate agent. It's your best friend, and it's our son.
0: That is Rodel Batista from a story done last August by Global News reporter Austin Siragusa on Rodel's son Gabriel, who uh, took his own life after battling addiction, and Rodel joins us on the phone now. Good afternoon, Rodel. Good afternoon, Al. Thank you for doing this. I, I really appreciate it. We've been talking a lot about the crime that's coming from the meth crisis. Today I'm trying to focus in on what do we do On the treatment side of things, Uh, just briefly uh, tell us about Gabriel because, boy, he he tried, didn't he?
2: Yeah, he did try. Like, um, you know, unfortunately, he he fell into a habit uh, when he was at 17 with hard drugs. He started uh, with cocaine and um, he did go, he did uh, happen to get him into a program and he, he did have some recovery at the age of 17. Um, He's clean for a couple of years, and um, when he relapsed, he relapsed uh, pretty hard. And what what started off as an addiction to cocaine, um, at the end of it, when you know his um, his means were diminishing, and lost his job, lost his car, and everything, that he turned to a, a, a less expensive drug, in, 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 and um, for the last couple of months of his his life, and. He suffered from really bad meth induced psychosis, and um, that's what led to him taking
0: his own life. I talked earlier to Ian Rabb from Aurora Recovery Center, and I'm going to talk to the medical director from the uh, Addictions Foundation of Manitoba after the news at 3 o'clock. I've got a few questions for you, but what's the message you want to get out there? Today when I asked if you'd come on, you said, every opportunity, I will take it. Why, what do you want people to know? What do you want to say?
2: What I want people to know is, is that this disease of addiction um, can touch everybody and has touched everybody in some way, shape, or form. Um, we by no means um, are a family that, that, that neglected our children. So we, we have a pretty big, blended family, but uh, we, we raise them to the best of our ability, and, and uh, Gabriel's brothers and sisters are, are all thriving first, and we grew, grew up in a house of love. And um, we, need to, we need to speak about this more. We need to let people aware, uh, be aware that it's happening every day to your neighbor, to your, to your family, to your friends. Um, the more we break down the stigma, the more I think we can really affect change and get these people who are suffering from this debilitating disease the treatment that they, that they deserve.
0: It's a disease, and it can happen to anyone, anywhere. I think that, you're right, that's the message. We need to get out there as much as we can.
2: Mm-hmm. And, the, and the more we talk about it, the more experiences that we share, uh, the more people that come forward who have suffered, you know, uh, from the disease, who have suffered with their with their family members, who have suffered through this disease, the more awareness will be will be made. This, the sad thing is, is where we've been very public with our story, um, but we've been contacted by, you know, dozens, probably hundreds of people who suffer in silence, who are afraid to seek the help of their family and friends because they're embarrassed because of the way that addicts and addiction is looked at in, in, in today's society. I mean, we've come a long way, but we've got so much more to go when it comes to um, knowing what drug addiction and mental illness is, is it exactly about.
0: And Gabriel, at the age of 17, seek treatment in a youth program, he graduated, but then relapsed, and by the time he relapsed, he was over the age of 18, and then he struggled to find help, right?
2: Yeah, it's it's jumping through hoops to get there. So I know you're speaking to AFL, you know, there were windows of opportunity where he wanted to seek recovery, um, so you, you, you call the numbers, you call the organizations that you know of, and. You know, it's it's a you know four-week wait to even have an intake appointment. Uh, so you get into the intake rep- appointment and they, they, they find you a treatment center or find you a solution. Um, he, your child needs to go through detox and be totally detoxed by the time they enter rehab. It's not a very comprehensive program. You can't go to one place and, and get advice on how to go through uh, the system or how to maneuver to, to try to get treatment. Um, other than than finding places that that you have to you know pay out of pocket to to get treatment, um, it, it's 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 an obstacle at, at every point in turn to find that treatment. And and because he's an adult, he, he, you know, if if he answers the question to their liking, you know, anywhere you take them, he gets released into into the public.
0: Yeah, and we heard that from Ian Rabb uh, at Aurora, and and Aurora, you know, Aurora is not an inexpensive place to go to deal with treatment. But uh, Ian said the same thing, and and police are saying we can't arrest our way out of the crime we're seeing. So that's why I wanted to focus on the treatment side today because I I get the sense I don't I'm, that's why I'm doing this today and talking to different people but I don't get the sense enough is being done and yesterday we tried to find people from this uh, meth task force to talk to us and they would talk to us but they wouldn't say what's going on and they say the report will be out, out at the end of June and I don't know it just seems to me like we've got a crisis there's no question about that but we're not doing enough about it.
2: I don't think the right people are being affected by it. You know, it's going to take a tragedy that hits home on, on a real level that's going to make people really take notice because right now it's, it, it's, um, it's looking at it in, in the criminal way, like looking at what, what mathematics are doing and, and the violent crimes and the stories that we hear out of Health Science Centre, and that's, that's what people are hearing, and they're not, they're not really taking a deeper look to seeing what's causing this right? So I don't, know, I don't know what the answer is, but I, I know that we, we need to really open up the conversation and get more people involved because obviously government stalled, uh, politicians aren't, aren't, really, aren't really taking action, and it needs to happen in a very big way in the community, and there, there needs to be more of a voice from the community saying that we need to get this done now, uh, and not just trying to patchwork uh, you know, a proposed clinic that, you know, I, I read a story the other day in The Sun that Scott Millick had that there's a new meth treatment going out that $18,000 is being invested into this into this program. And, and that's not going to help. It's a start, but it's not going to make change right now. It's not going to affect any uh, effective changes in the system that, that we have going right now. You know, our healthcare care uh, um, professionals are, are are at their wit's end they don't know how to deal with with addicts that come in and that, that have a tendency to be violent when they come into the emergency room and once they go through that process there really isn't anywhere for them to sit um to find treatment or to get help they're they're left to go on their own version in in, in, in their own power to to leave just because they've, they've answered a few questions that you know are, are sufficient for for them to do listen to the public so
0: Rodell, thank you very much for doing this. I, I really appreciate it. I'm, I'm so sorry for your loss. And uh, please continue to speak out about this. Uh, you're very courageous for doing it.
2: Thank you very much, Al. Any, anytime you, you, you want to discuss any of, any of this, feel free to call me.
0: Thank you very much. Rodell Batista joining us. Uh, his son, Gabriel, was addicted. Graduated, as I said, from a youth program, but at the age of 18, once he turned 18, he could not get the help that he needed and took his own life. Dr. Jeanette Pullen, Medical Director at the Addictions Foundation of Manitoba. Uh, Dr. Pullen, thank you for doing this.
3: Oh, my pleasure, Hal.
0: So, explain the the. I want to talk about the RAM clinics. These are the Rapid Access to Addictions Medicine clinics. The RAM clinics. Uh, explain uh, when they were introduced, what they were doing then, and and how they've changed, and what they're doing now. If that's the case.
3: Absolutely. So the RAM clinics are uh, quite an interesting model. It was actually developed after a very successful program in Ontario. And what these RAM clinics offer and what's unique about them is they're a walk in uh, direct access to addiction services. So that includes um, an addictions expert, um, usually a physician, um, a nurse, and a counselor, who can not only do an assessment at that point of time, but provide them with the care, start treatment um, uh, immediately, and integrate them into the rest of the addiction services so these clinics first began in about September 2018, so we've been about eight months in, and what we're seeing is a large uptake in terms of uh, Manitobans uh, seeking, these, uh, seeking these clinics. And normally that um, is the transition of uh, the individuals from the clinic into the rest of the healthcare system, meaning things like primary care, um, addiction services, such as uh, residential programs, uh, private clinics, um, and, and such forth.
0: And how many uh, people, how many Manitobans, Winnipeggers, Manitobans have been helped by the RAM clinics? How many people have you seen?
3: Yeah, so we have five sites currently, uh, two in Manitoba, one at the Crisis Response Centre, one at the Riverpoint uh, Centre, and then we have one clinic in Brandon, one in Selkirk, and one in uh, Thompson, Manitoba. Each of these um, have served, um, I guess in total, over 1,000 Manitobans um, in the span of these eight months.
0: And so a thousand Manitobans have come wanting help, and then how many of them uh, are are still getting that help in the system?
3: Uh, so what we can say is that um, when we look at the follow-up data, most are still, and what, at, what that trend, which is kind of interesting, is that we're seeing more and more follow-ups currently. So not only are people being directed into other services, but they're also utilizing the RAM clinic for follow-ups. And that's certainly um, in the, you know, 600 range. So that tells us it's meeting a need that even if there are wait times elsewhere, um, people are accessing the counselling services, um, they're receiving uh, medication and having followed up to that. It might be different psychotherapies such as CBT. Um, so it is meeting a need that certainly um, helps um, helps bridge the gap uh, between these systems. Uh, another interesting thing is that um, you know when we look at the substances, and I, as I understand it, crystal meth um, has been uh, the topic you've been yeah. discussing today. Um, what we are noting is that about 50% of those entering into clinic um, are presenting primarily with alcohol use disorders. So that's still 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 a really important topic that we don't necessarily um, give all the attention uh, that is required. And then about 25% are coming in with stimulant use, including crystal meth, and about another 25% for opiate use disorder. And so um, even when we look at numbers for medical treatments, we're seeing, you know, over 200 were started on suboxone uh, during these past uh, eight months, which is the recommended treatment for opiate use disorder. We have about 150 that were started on naltrexone and acamprosate, and those are medication that are used for alcohol, um, so we're seeing um, a, a nice increase in people accessing the care that they might not have uh, otherwise.
0: And we, we did talk earlier about how alcohol is still the biggest issue uh, being dealt with, uh, even you know, uh, uh, Ian Rabbit, Aurora, and, and you're you're saying the same thing. I you know obviously meth is getting the headlines right now because we're seeing a lot of crime around that, and it's something relatively new that we're, we seem to be struggling uh, to deal with this. Um, When the RAM clinics first opened up, they were only open a couple days a week, certain hours and stuff. Has that changed?
3: Uh, Currently, we're in the review of a process to, because this started out as an initiative, we're in the eight months. So it's kind of at that midpoint where we're starting to look at um, what do we need to do? Where do we need to expand? And so um, proposals have been put in, and government uh, will be reviewing kind of the data and where we need to go um, with, that. What I will say is that when we look at the model in Ontario, um, what they did was they expanded in locations um, uh, as opposed to a length of hours at a certain clinic. And so I think it's really important to see who is accessing, where are they accessing, and where are those needs. And often, um, as a provider in the system, I hear many people uh, throughout the province saying, what about us? And what about us? And so um, uh, understandably, our geography is spread out. And so I think um, how to uh, provide services that can meet the needs of all Manitobans is a factor uh, to consider within this. And um, again, uh, you know, as an anecdote, uh, certainly what I, what I have found is, um, you know, of those who have primary care providers, you know, about half that are presenting do have a family physician or a nurse practitioner um, but are still seeking uh, care at RAM due to either stigma they feel um, they're facing or the shame that they have. And so I think part of what RAM is also offering is help to break down some of that, that stigma that still exists um, in our world today when it comes to uh,
0: addictions. And the reason I ask about the clinics and the hours and days they're opened, and, and you're the expert, that's why you're on my show telling me and, and answering my questions. I don't know. It just seemed to me that certain days and certain hours, you know, if somebody decides I need help, they need help right then and there, not Tuesday at, at four, you know? <laughs>
3: Yeah and that's something that is uh, always kind of an innately uh, challenging question and you know um, in in an ideal world we wouldn't be facing this at all. Um, That being said um, certainly as an initiative one of the things is looking at hours and days and um, I can say that we notice trends for example uh, Mondays tend to be busier than the Thursdays and do mornings afternoons and evenings which ones accommodate more and so um, as we're putting resources forward these are some of the the things that we will look at. One thing I will say is is that of persons who are accessing the care, and I think when we look at kind of the follow-up numbers, um, you know, certainly we want to meet people where they're at and when they're at, uh, when they're ready. Part of that also means preparing them for what the treatment uh, might look like. And I think when we see more people following up, that means getting them ready to get into, for example, a residential program or transitioning them into a community base. So, um, you know, uh, that, that does mean offering care in, in different hours, which does happen. Um, with some of our nurses who are staffed full-time, even if the clinic is um, open for new intakes only in the uh, short-term period. So we are doing a lot of uh, follow-up and uh, other duties associated with that in different times. But certainly moving forward, these are the things and the factors that we're we're certainly going to want to consider. The other reality is RAM in isolation is not the solution to everything, meaning that um, it needs to work in conjunction with the rest of the system. So uh, one of the other aspects of the RAM clinics is looking to mentor and build expertise within the healthcare system as it exists um, so one of the uh, I guess initiatives that's coming out of this and one of the responses that we're seeing is that you know acute care services and primary care are saying we realize this RAM is here, we realize our patients are accessing these services. How do we help? And so um, helping to bridge um, uh, the gaps between the primary care and acute services, build um, expertise, build uh, expertise, you know, provide education, work on that kind of collaborative uh, um, work together is really important. And I think, you know, even in the climate where we look at the Virgo report, I think the RAM has been a great example of collaborat- collaboration. Collaboration, uh, particularly working strongly with, you know, the regional health authorities, um, with us at the Addictions Foundation of Manitoba, also with other entities such as Main Street Project, you know, Union Gospel Mission, Saint Raphael, uh, and whatnot. So it's helping to uh, bridge. Uh, the system at large, which I think is um, a really positive uh, aspect of the RAM clinic.
0: One one final question. Are there people that come to a RAM clinic, but then there's no place for them after that? Because, you know, we hear that treating, especially meth, is, you know, a a multi-step Uh, sort of a a process, right? So if somebody comes to Ram and says, I need help, do you ever, uh, have you had anybody that comes wanting help, but there's no next step for them?
3: Uh, Personally, when I have worked in the clinics, I have never seen that. Often our crystal meth, we're bridging into uh, our um, withdrawal management services. Um, So that's particularly Main Street Project and uh, AFM's Eaglewood up in Thompson um, uh, and transitioning into there into um, a residential program. The other reality is sometimes they need mental health. And so um, that might be communicating or helping to develop relationships um, to bridge them into the mental health care, Um, unfortunately sometimes if they're in pure uh, psychosis we do need to um, uh, support them back into the emergency services so really it's uh, upon presentation making a plan um, uh, which may include same day or within a couple days um, one of the other services but certainly with follow-up with the RAM clinic uh, in the interim.
0: Dr. Poulin thanks a lot for this I really appreciate it and and good luck you've got a, a really important task.
3: Thank you very much Hal.